Think about the laughter, maybe you identify some of you in this room. How many of you have been married more than 20 years in this room? Let me see your hands. Real high, real high. Yeah, awesome. How many of you less than 20 years? Let me see your hands. Wow, a lot more hands. Kim and I are coming up on 20 years in July. And um, it's amazing when you look back over marriage what 20 years can look like. And it's, it's even more amazing when I look at people who have been married 40 years and 50 years. And I just think, how did you do that? It's just so amazing to me. And that's what uh, hopefully we can talk a little bit about today. Quickly before I get into that, though, I want to just remind the men in the room, we have a men's event at 2 o'clock. Is that right, Mike? Help me out. we got Halo going on. we got all kinds of... Ge- we did this one night uh, several weeks ago, and this whole auditorium is transformed into a big game room. So men, we want to encourage you to come and be a part of that at 2 o'clock. You don't want to miss it. It was a blast. I got killed in everything, so it's, uh, it's fun. It's good. We'll see you there at 2 o'clock. Is there anything you want to add or need to add? Good. Two o'clock, men, we will see you there. I, uh, as I was looking at this, I thought about um, kind of capturing an image from both the man's perspective in a marriage and a wife's perspective or a woman's perspective in the marriage. If you've been married even a week, you've dealt with conflict. It's just part of the deal and it's part of the package. And every one of us, when we face that conflict, I think we need to understand it's not so much that we have the conflict, but it's how we respond to and how we handle that conflict. And hopefully by the time we're done today, we can give you some tools to help you with that. But I, I want to just connect with the men in the room. Some of you ladies may have always wondered, what's it like for a man to be in conflict? What's, what's he feeling? What's he thinking? What's that like? And so I thought I would just bring this picture to kind of help the ladies in the room understand what the men often feel like in the midst of conflict. All the men kind of just don't do anything or you'll get shot again. This is, this is kind of a man's perspective. Now, you have to sit and really think about that picture for, for a moment to realize that if the aim is not really great, then we've got bigger issues. Now, for the men, you may wonder what the wife's perspective is like. And so we thought we would bring a picture to kind of help you. <laughs> um, some of you ladies are like, you don't know how true that really is. And so sometimes the ladies are left feeling like this. And then I came across, have you ever seen those motivational posters that you get, the successories? Have you all seen some of those? Uh, I came across a, a poster like that, sort of a successories poster, and I thought I would just share the encouragement with all of you. Now, how many know that's probably not real good? Some of you are really laughing. That makes me nervous. Um, <laughs> How many know that's probably not the best motto to live by with your married life? You know, it's just going to be bad, so from day one, go to drinking because it's only going to get worse. God created this whole thing we call marriage, and that was not, that was not the picture that He has for it. He did not desire for you and I to live in this, this eternal moment on earth, or however long we're on earth, in misery and frustration and anger and just issues with one another. That, that was never ever God's plan for your marriage. Some of you may step into a marriage sometimes and go, how did I get into this? Why did, I, why did I even do this? You realize that your wife is the only relative in your family that you got to choose. You're aware of that. Let that settle in for a moment. Your Uncle Joe that drives you crazy, you didn't get to choose him. Just being part of the family, it is what it is. Your brothers, your sisters, your siblings that drove you crazy growing up, it is what it is. But your spouse... Your husband or your wife, that's your choice. That's all on you. 
It's all on us. And I think God wants us to have an awesome adventure in our married life. He wants it to be a, a, a totally awesome experience where we are able to really know what true love is inside of that marriage with one another. Mark 10, I want to read this. Mark 10, 6, 9 says this. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Let me say also, there's a, sometimes that's the issue at hand. Uh, the man or the wife doesn't leave mom and dad. That's a whole other message for a whole other day. There's a whole other set of issues. If you're holding on tight to mom and dad and you're 40 years old, you need to grow up. Um, because sometimes I've literally sat in counseling sessions with people and it's like I feel like I'm married to his parents because we do everything with them and we're there all the time. Or I feel like I'm married to her mom because they're, they're always together. And I just feel like when I married her, I married my mother-in-law, and that she's the one I'm with, and we kind of walk through that. There is such a thing as being too tight, because God's Word says you are to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And I want to say publicly, Steve Wallen absolutely nailed last weekend's teaching in an in a amazing way. And I just want to say that publicly. I sat back and, and uh, I've already said I want the notes to that. I think that, that was just an incredible message. And this picture of two becoming one. You as husband and wife are one. So when you get angry at your spouse, you should realize you're getting angry at yourself if you truly are one. If you are uh, being spiteful to your spouse, you should be able to view it as being spiteful to yourself because you two should be one. And there are moments in your marriage when you know what that means. You've experienced that. You've felt that. What it means to, to be truly together as one flesh. Not just in a sexual sense, but to be together in heart, to be together in emotion, to be together as one flesh. i got to tell you that 19 years in, close to 20 years in, for me, it just gets better and better and better. Does it get easier and easier and easier? Absolutely not. Kim and I still have our moments. This week... We were getting the house ready to have people walk through to look at this house. And, um, and as we're working through that, there's two things that I think every couple should test their marriage with. And one is to either move together after 20 years. You can't do it after six months out of an apartment. That doesn't count, right? Those of you that understand what it is to sort of migrate into a home for 20 plus years. Have you ever just wondered how you get to the place you've accumulated all the junk that you've accumulated. And we're going through the moment of trying to clean it up and we're trying to, you know, make it uh, presentable. And I tend to, in stressful moments, get a little intense, would be the word I would use. How many of you understand the deeper meanings of that word, intense? I'm a jerk, if you want to just get right down to it. And I had several jerk moments this week that um, I'd love to take back, but I can't. Have you ever had the moment where, you know, to walk out of a room and just to walk out of the room is not enough? You need to leave a message, right? So the door, you can't just pull the door to, it's boom, right? Where the whole house shakes and you're just like, you don't say a word, but you are saying a lot in that moment when you slam the door. Or when you take that passive-aggressive approach and you just sort of pull into that shell and you just, you're not going to talk about it, but you're going to let your spouse know, I'm not happy, though you may not say a word. Well, I've gone through the seasons of life where I would explode, did some of that this week, and then I've tried to temper that because I tend to be too intense 
And um, I, I think maybe I picked this up from my dad. I remember growing up that my dad would, you, you could tell when my dad was really ticked because he would set his jaw. And it was, I understand it now. I didn't understand it when I was the one pushing all the buttons, but I understand it now. And my dad used to just set the jaw. And it wasn't, you didn't wonder, hmm, I wonder if dad is dreaming of a beautiful sunshine day and flowers and birds. You knew if he opens even slightly that mouth, it's going to come out and just, and dad did a great job holding that. I don't set the chin because I am intense. I bite the lip. Now, I don't know what your mechanism is. You know, you need to look at your spouse right now and find out because you have one, I'm sure. Mine is like this. It's and if she's not seeing me bite the lip, you tilt the head. You put some movement. It's like... Because you want them to know you're upset. You don't, you don't really want to control your emotions, do you, in that moment? You really don't want to say, God, I want to honor you by honoring my spouse and I'm going to just walk away and be quiet. No, we do this. Which says, if only I could say what I was thinking. And then if that's not enough, we say, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. You ever been there? It's like, well, might as well say it. It's already out there. Well, Kim and I, this week, we had one of those moments, and I thought I was, I thought I was doing better, because I'm trying to mature and not let my temper and my, you know, you can't even call it passion. It's not passion, it's anger. It's just, you know, and I'm sitting there, and Kim's, I'm in the garage waiting, and Kim's working on getting something. We're, we're, we got to go, and I'm like, just frustrated. And I come back to the door, and Kim's standing there, and she's putting the stuff in. She's tired, she's exhausted, I'm, and she never looks up, never looks up. She just says, hope that lip tastes good. <laughs> All she said. And I just looked at her and I said, ooh, I'm not going to say it. Not going to say it. It's those moments we have, isn't it? We all have them. You had them this week if you're married. Some of you had them today, this morning. And sometimes our kids stress us and they push the buttons. Sometimes other experiences happen that stress us and we just get to the point that conflict is part of our life. And what you need to understand is God never desired for you to live in uncontrolled conflict and uncontrolled stress. God looked down in Genesis and He said, It is not good that man should be alone. In chapter 1, he says, I want to create man in my image and my likeness. And he goes on to say, it's not good that he is by himself. Men, God knew we needed a helper. And God knew we needed somebody to share life with. God knew we needed somebody that would complete us. Because by ourselves, we are not complete. By ourselves, we're a pretty, drab, boring creature. But God brought beauty into this world... God brought beauty into our life when He created a woman for us to share life with. And God gave me the most beautiful wife. I, have, I, I love my wife not just because of her outer beauty. I love my wife because of the inner beauty that grows more and more and more every year. The fact my wife can sit there and just love me through all that lip biting and love me through all those things that happen when I get intense. It just causes me to be more endeared to her by the day. You see, there will be stress in your life. Husband and wife are riding down the road. The husband looks over and he sees a donkey in the field. And because sarcasm is a gift for some men, tongue in cheek, um, 
he decided he would make a point to his wife who he'd been feuding with. He looks at the donkey and he says, huh, see that donkey? Relative of yours? Some of you maybe heard this. The wife never missed a beat, said, yeah, by marriage. <laughs> Some of us were donkeys. We're donkeys. I'll let your mind finish it the way you want to finish that. And God says, I don't want you to be that way. Why do we do that? Why are we that way? James 4 gives us an answer. If you have your Bible, turn there because I think we need to just break it down. I am moving as quick as I can here, so bear with me. James chapter 4. If you have your Bible, if not, it'll be on the screens. I love what this says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? (laughs) He just starts with a question. Now understand, he's writing to the church, but I think it has application into the married, married life. Husband, today, let me ask you a question. Let's just stop, look at me a minute. What causes the fights and quarrels with you and your wife? Well, she just doesn't clean the house like I want her to. She just doesn't cook very well. Heard the story of the wife that was you know, new, newlywed and she cooked a meatloaf and then she cooked some kind of dessert. She looked at the husband and said, I learned to do both. And he said, it's great, honey. Which one is this that I'm eating? Um, and we may, have, we may have some of those moments. And you may go, she's not this and she's not that. And you may look at the husband and say, he's the laziest bum I read another thing that said, you know, the wives are responsible for these decisions. They take care of the finances, decisions, da, 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 and it come down to the end of this thing. And it said the husband basically is responsible for what we watch on TV because he has the remote in his hand. And often that's the case. Husbands, wives, why do you fight and quarrel? What is it today? What, what caused you to fight and quarrel as you came in today to church? What caused you to fight and quarrel, Jeff Smith, when you were cleaning a house this week? He goes on and answers this question. It's interesting. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You, me, want something, but we don't get it. You see, the bottom line is we want our way in a marriage. I married Kim so that she could help complete me. But instead of understanding God's picture of that, I had my own picture of that. That means Kim's going to do everything I don't want to do. Wrong. That means Kim's going to deal with all the stuff I don't want to deal with. Wrong. That means that I, I get my way when I stand and say, for better, for worse, it'll be for my better, for her worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. I have no clue how many weddings I've done in my ministry in the last 18, 19 years. I've done many. And I've often stood there wondering in my mind, As I stand there listening to these words, I, Jeff, take you, Kim, to be my lawfully wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness, in health. To love, honor, and cherish for as long as we both shall live. Have I done a few weddings to be able to roll that off? And they give that vow. And then a year later, two years later, they're back in my office going, I'm done, it's over, I want a divorce. And I sit and I'm confused because I wonder, those words we spoke before God, the words we spoke in front of everybody sitting in that audience, did we really understand what we were saying? Now I'm going to kind of let us get a little raw here. 
I think we live in a society where our words become a little lighter by the day. Our words are, sure, I'll take care of that. Sure, I'll do that. And I'll, I'll stand behind that. And I'll do this. And frankly, we live in a day that the contract of a piece of paper often holds more validity than our spoken word does. That's sad. I hear of a day my grandfather grew up in and others who your word was your bond and you stood behind that word. When you gave your word, you did whatever was necessary to stand behind it. I think that day has drifted away. We've got some great people in our world today that do still believe that. They stand in integrity and they honor their word and they will keep their word. And if that be the case, then when we stand in front of God on a wedding day and I try to tell couples, you are speaking these words before God. Who created you? He is the one watching in this room right now to hear these words, for better, for worse. He knows what it's going to look like even when you don't. For richer, for poor. He knows what it's going to look like even when you don't. In sickness and in health. Forsaking all others, I will keep myself only to you for as long as we both shall live. It's hard. It's hard. That's tough when you live in a culture so saturated by sexual innuendos and sexual images. It's hard to say, I will keep myself only to you for as long as we both shall live. But it can be done. It can be done. And it often is done. It's hard to to say, I will love you in the midst of everything, regardless of how much crap, pardon the word, you throw my way. I'm going to love you in spite of it. I'm going to embrace you in spite of it. I'm going to accept you because it is not about me. It is about you and I together. I always find it interesting that we do a unity candle. I often wonder if couples really understand what the significance of each thing we do in a wedding is. Would you, in a, in a ceremony, lit the candle? Some of you maybe did that in, in your ceremony. If your pastor who was conducting the ceremony had you light the candle, he most likely should have had you blow out your individual candles. Because the imagery there is that once we have lit this candle together in marital union, we blow out our own candle because we say, no longer am I going to live for this one single candle, this one single light. I now choose to extinguish my desires. I now choose to extinguish my selfish ambitions and the things I want. And I'm going to give them to you. And I will work with you together as we do this marriage in a God-honoring way. You see, that's what it means when you light the unity candle. It's not just a pretty moment to decorate a room and to have an action step in a ceremony. You are making a big, big statement. I'm giving my life to this person to share life with them and live with them. God calls us to reconciliation. In the midst of it, He says, you're fighting and you're quarreling. It's because you want what you want. I want you to turn to your spouse and I want you to look him in the eye if you're sitting here with a spouse. If you're not, you can say this in your heart. The day will come when you are married. I will yield my will for the good of our marriage. Now, you don't have to say it now, but I want you, if you want to say that, you can say that. I choose to die to me. Now, that doesn't feel real good. I choose to die to me. So honey, if you need to take 45 minutes to get ready for us to go, I'm okay with that. How many of you husbands went, (laughs) Honey, if you totally destroy our house because you think you're Mr. Handyman, 
I'm kind of okay with that. Some of you men in this room are like me. I, I am terrible for not finishing a project. And my wife, just she's so gracious and so loving, she'll just kind of look at, I know what she's thinking. It's like, hmm, been that way for five years, that same wall. Hmm. See, you will sacrifice your desires. You will sacrifice your will. You will sacrifice what you are thinking. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. The message says this in verse 17 through 19. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. They're created new. The old life is gone and a new life flourishes. Look at it, he says. All this comes from God, who settled the relationship between us and Him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. He basically says, look, God was so passionate about reconciliation that He sent His Son to reconcile us to Him. Jesus died so that we could have a way back to God. That's what we're about here, helping people find their way back to God. Jesus came and died on a cross so that you and I could have this connection again, this relationship again with the One who created us. Sometimes that's hard to even see, understand, comprehend. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine this huge, big God out there that wants to have a relationship with you. That wants to know you in a personal way, but he did. God's whole deal was about relationship in Genesis 1. God's whole deal was about creating somebody that he could have relationship with. And in that relationship and in that love, he said, I'm not only going to create you, but I'm going to give you a helper. Hear this. If you don't hear anything else today, when God did that, he said, I want you to see a picture of me in this marriage. Every time you look at a husband and wife, God's dream was that you would see a picture of God and people in that marriage. That's why there's places in Scripture that it says Jesus, it references that Jesus was the groom or is the groom. Sort of this symbolism. Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. You'll see passages that talk about you know, the church being the bride of Christ. And this imagery, God loves marriage. God loves the picture that we see embodied in a marriage. So I ask you this question. What do you think happens in the heart of God when He sees a marriage that's absolutely exploding and blowing apart? How much does God stop and say, but this is a picture of my relationship with people. I don't want it to blow apart. I want it to be a picture of the best that I have for them, the love I have for them, the passion I have for them, the gifts that I have for them. See, that's what Steve was referencing last week. Sex is God's gift to us to say, I want you to enjoy this union. It is something I give you for your pleasure because I am a cool God. How many think sex was a great idea that God had? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's enough of that. Moving on. Steve did a great job. God wants you in the proper context, not outside of marriage, Not outside of being united with a husband or wife. God wants you to have that relationship with one another. You see, here's the thing. We are called to be about reconciliation. We're called to pursue it in spite of our expectations. You know, I've had some couples that I sat with in counseling. And I would look and say, you know what? I would encourage you to go and share this with your spouse. And they're like, that's a waste of time. Well, could you try it? (laughs) It's a waste of time. You're a jerk. Where have you been for the last half hour when I was explaining what kind of a person they were? Yeah, but you think maybe if God calls you to reconciliation, you could walk back in? No, I don't have a high expectation. I already know them. 
You see, often we refuse to move toward that place of reconciling relationship because we already have it framed, don't we? They are going to do this when I do this, and that's going to create this. And rather than us saying, you know what, God, I'm going to do what you ask me to do in a relationship and take a step back toward to make it right before you and to make it healthy and whatever their response is, I'm going to trust you to work in their heart too. We just say, no, I know how that story ends. I've read that chapter. No, thank you. And the whole time, this picture of putting together something that God is all about. God came to you. After we, if you want to use a spiritual sense of the phrase, spiritually cheated on God. We spiritually cheated on God in our lives. We did our thing. We walked away. We did our thing. And God says, I still love you. And I still want to take you in. I want to take you back. And God says, I want that to be the picture of your marriage. You say, Jeff, that's a nice speech, man. That's a nice speech. We've heard you talk about Kim. She seems like an angel. And you're a jerk. You don't live with my spouse. You don't know what I go through. You don't know what I deal with. You have no clue what you just said. You're an idiot. Get off the stage. I know some of you are thinking that right now. All I know is that God said, I want you to be about reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, He says, we just read it. When God gives you a new fresh start, when God puts back together what was broken and what was blown apart, He says, I want to hand you This same passion for reconciliation with people. You see, we're all about, oh, I want to have this thing with God and I want to have a relationship and I want to go to heaven and all that, but mm, hate Him. Hate her. Can't stand her. And God says, no, 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 no. If it goes this way, it needs to go this way. God says, I'm calling you out today. Because as long as this is messed up and you're not walking toward reconciliation, we got issues we're still going to be working through this way. It says, it's a picture of my grace that I want you to live out and map out. Here's the biggie. We must pursue reconciliation for the sake of the next generation. I don't know if you even think about the impact of what we do and what it does to our kids. Ah, great. He's going to play the kid card. Make me feel guilty. According to the U.S. Census Bureau... In 1920, anybody in here alive in 1920? One person, great. Tony Wilhelm, live in your church, Tony. God's going to deal with you, man. 1920, one divorce per seven marriages. One divorce in 1920 per seven marriages. 1940, 20 years later, the Census U.S. Bureau said there was one divorce in six marriages, 20 years. 1960, another 20 years. The divorce was one per four marriage. And we only dropped one in the first 20 years. The second, we've dropped two. 1972, the divorce was one per three. And in 1977, 77, it was already at one in every two marriages. Now, some statistics currently show that some that has somewhat held. Here's what's alarming. If you go to Barna, who is a guy that does a lot of research in the church, the numbers for the church look totally different coming through the 60s and the 70s than what it did in the world. People who claim to be Christ followers, the numbers looked a lot better as far as staying in marriages. But something happened in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and it's really fallen apart in 2000 plus. Because now what you see is there is no different statistics in the church than what there is in the world when it comes to divorce and remarriage and marriage in general. 
Now, God says, I want you to model it in front of the people around you as a Christ follower. God says marriage is sacred, and I want you to live it out. And the reality is, we're struggling in these relationships. Now, that is not to cast stones on you. That is not to say shame on you, you wretched, miserable person, if you've gone through a divorce. I understand that it happens. There are people in this room that have encountered the pain, and it is painful. But i got to tell you, the one that I struggle with when I see reasons for people getting divorced is the one that's called irreconcilable differences. I want to say, can't get along. That's basically what that means. Hollywood, that's, you see it all the time. Irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. And God says, you know what? I believe they are reconcilable differences. If you're a follower of Christ, it can happen. And the next generation is watching. Now, there's some statistics that are stats, numbers like paint, painting the picture you want. I understand this. I want to be careful here. But there are some reports that are indicating the generation now that's coming on the scene to get married have been so burnt by the life they've experienced in a broken home that they're now saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm either not going to get married or I'm just going to live together and avoid that whole thing. God has a lot to say about living together. God says it is not His best, it is not His will, nor does He approve when we choose to do that. Because God says, I want you to have a relationship inside of me in the context of marriage. And God says, this is the picture that I put out in front of you. And it does affect the next generation. My daughter, this week... <laughs> this, why did I laugh? That's sick. Um, my daughter texts me after... Remember this moment? <laughs> my daughter happened to be in the house... I get in the car and I'm driving. We had to take two cars wherever we were going. My daughter texts me and says, I don't even remember. She probably still had it on the phone. Dad, chill out. Mom's going to take your head off. <laughs> now, Kim, for the record, never got in the van, car and said, I'm going to take your dad's head off. He and I are going to throw down and we're going to... She just... Whitney was seeing dad hit jerk mode. Because I was. And Whitney was seeing mom have to deal with that and process it, because she was. And Whitney is now old enough not to go, oh, I wonder what's going on. She's now old enough to say, Dad, Dad, chill out. (laughs) See, we have a referee in our house now. Wait till your teenagers get there. Chill out. And I remember reading that thinking, my daughter is having to step in and go, time out, Dad, you're out of control. And it feels real good. And then I got to thinking, I want to talk about conflict this week. And my daughter is texting me to calm down and chill out. Doesn't work real well. I want to give you a story and I wrap. I'm moving on. Go home and look in Genesis 33. There's a very interesting story. There's a guy by the name of Jacob. And Jacob has basically (laughs) screwed his brother out of the inheritance. If you go back earlier in Genesis, you're going to find Jacob and Esau. Esau's firstborn, and under Jewish custom, the birthright is what it was called, but the majority of the inheritance is supposed to go to Esau through a series of events. Jacob basically steals it. It was handed down by a blessing of the father, placing hands on them, praying and giving the blessing and all that. And while Esau's out hunting, Jacob puts on this animal cloth because he was a skinny Calgon baby, basically. He was a little mama's boy that followed mama around in the kitchen with the apron stuff. Go read it. It doesn't say aprons and Calgon, but... Basically, it's there. And as he's falling around, Mama wants her little boy to be taken care of and protected. And so she wants little Jacob to have the inheritance. 
And so they devise this plan. He goes in, he steals it. Long story short, he steals the birthright. Esau comes home, he's ticked off. And mama's going, Jacob, you better run. Go to my brother Laban's house. Go to Uncle Laban's house and stay with him. You want to know what's hilarious about this story? Jacob, who ripped off his brother. Y'all staying with this so far? I'm throwing a lot of info at you. Jacob, who rips off his brother, goes to Uncle Laban and he sees a daughter. Now, I, I'm not going to get in the whole cousins discussion. I don't know. This is kind of messed up. But he goes in and he says, wow, I want her. Ooh, la, 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 la. And he sees Rachel and he goes, I want to marry her. And Laban says, sure, we can do that. Work for me seven years as the dowry. There was a dowry. You basically had to do something to earn the right to marry a daughter. So work for me seven years. So, you know, he's out there working and this is all good. He's doing all this stuff. Seven years come, they walk down the aisle. I'm going to marry Rachel. I do, I do, I do. He flips up the top and it's Leah, the old ugly one. True story. The swindler gets out swindled. And he goes back, he says, what's this deal? You just put me in a marriage relationship with Leah. And Leah, oh. And he says, I wanted to marry Rachel. Now I'm kind of embellishing some of that. So I'm sorry, God, it's a cool story to... And Leah says, or, or Jacob says, I want Rachel. Laban says, then you've got to work another seven years. So he works another seven years. Go read it in Genesis. So finally, he has Rachel. They get married. He's got two wives. I'll let that settle in. And as they're doing life, they have children. And there's this whole thing you have to go and read. But they're, they're, these two wives are like going at it. I want kids for him because he'll love me more. I want kids because he'll love me more. It's like whoever can give the offspring. Well, Leah has children. Rachel desires to have a child. And all of a sudden, Joseph comes on the scene. Joseph's very important in this story. And as Joseph is born, he is the, he is the child that Rachel gives Jacob. Jacob, he holds little Joseph. This is my baby boy. But then all of a sudden the time comes for him to part ways and he leaves Laban. And as he's going back, we're bringing it to the text I want to read. As he's going back, he gets word that Esau's coming, his brother. Remember the one that he kind of took all his stuff. He's coming to meet him. Now, what are you probably going to feel when you hear he's coming to meet me right now? I'm dead. Pretty much. And they told him, he's coming with a bunch of men. I'm really dead. It's over. Cal gone baby. Let's not lose sight of that. Esau, big brother, warrior, tough guy. And so Jacob begins to devise a plan. Okay, and what is so amazing when you read the... Let's read it. Genesis 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Now, you're dead. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in the front. Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph are in the back. So basically, God go, or, or Jacob goes, I'm going to put the ones that are most, most expendable right up front. So when he starts killing, he'll get rid of the maidservants and their kids first, because they're most expendable. Then I'm going to put Leah next. How I many see this pecking order he creates? We sort of see the heart of Joseph. Joseph's heart is back here, and Rachel... And Joseph are back here near the heart of Jacob and all these others that he's willing to expend to protect them. Here's what's interesting in this text. If you read this text that I've just read, Jacob, Leah, when it says he put her children there, it says that Leah and her children were positioned second in line. It intrigues me that it goes on to name Joseph by name. It says, it doesn't say Rachel and her child, 
it says that Rachel and Joseph were placed toward the back. Here's what I think God's allowing us to do. He is giving us a glimpse. Because if you read this story, what happens is Jacob runs and he bows down. And he bows seven times. Esau runs to meet Jacob and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, little Joseph doesn't know it. But in 12 chapters, he is going to go through being thrown in a pit. He is going to be going through the prison, and he is going to go through living out an experience in a ruler's house where he was accused falsely of having an affair with his wife. And guess how that journey starts? His brothers sold him out. Joseph basically gets sold out by his brothers in chapters 40 through 44, and we see this story, this journey, and all of a sudden as the story goes on, Joseph now sits at the right hand of the king of Egypt. He interprets a dream. The dream says we're going to have seven years of of plenty and then we're going to have seven years of drought. So he's setting second in command. Are you still tracking with all the details here? Here's the brothers of Leah, her sons. They come before Joseph 30, 40, 50 years later, whatever it is. And they walk in and Joseph has the power to go cut their heads off. You see, this is a replay version of Genesis 33 where we have Jacob standing before his brother Esau, who had every right to say, kill him, he's a thief, take his life. But what is interesting to me is that when you read the story, we see this little boy, Joseph, sitting back here on a camel. As you read this whole whole moment in Genesis 33, we see a little boy sitting there, probably trying to figure out, why is daddy so nervous? Why have we lined all the people up? Why are my cousins out, or my my half-brother, sisters out in front, and I'm sitting here? He's processing this as a little boy. And then he watches as he hears that Esau was probably here to kill us. And Joseph says, that means I'm going to die. But he watches Uncle Esau as he hugs and, and embraces Dad. Why wouldn't Uncle Esau kill us? He had every right to. Why does Uncle Esau want to reconcile? And now, as Joseph, as a 40, 50-year-old man, whatever it was, sets as a ruler of Egypt, and his brothers come in. He's now in Esau's place, and he can take their life if he so chooses. But something in his mind takes him back to that moment on a camel, watching Uncle Esau hug his dad. And if you read chapter 45, he says, I can't take their life. I've seen the generation ahead of me live out reconciliation. And he embraces and weeps, much like what we see in Genesis 33. What's the story? You today affect what your kids observe and how they live out their marriage in 20 years, or 10, or 15. Your kids will behave much the way you do in your marriage today. Reconciliation is being called on us for God, by God, so that we can live it out as an example. And some of you are like, dude, don't lay that trip on me. But it just is. Now, I want to close with an illustration and we're going to be done. Some of you have been sitting in this room by your spouse trying to figure out how to put this around their neck. That's why it's as short as it is. You can't do that. I want to give you something to think about. If you were to only take two strands and try to tie them together and intertwine them, they're not going to hold. 
They're going to unravel. This, this cord you hold in your hand actually has more than three. But if you were to just take two and try to tie them up and wind them up together, they'll just unravel. They're not going to hold together. Braid your daughter's hair if she has long hair. You can't just take two and try to twirl it around. It's just going to come un- unloose. When you look at a marriage, it should look like this rope you hold in your hand. There will be you and your spouse, but you will never hold that marriage together unless you put a third strand in that rope, and that is the strand of God's grace and mercy and presence in your marriage. You will never figure it out by yourself with two strands. You could take the two strands and try to pull them together. They will never look like this rope unless you put a third entity a third strand into this rope and allow it to be woven at every turn and every intersection of that experience until every single twist and turn create this image of God Himself. Some of you are struggling today because you're trying to make a marriage work, just the two of you. And God says, if you'll just let me in, if you will just give me a chance to help you both Live beyond yourself and your own desires in the James 4 moment of I want, I want my way. If you will just let me in and allow my grace and allow my presence to lead your every word and your every thought and your every moment, then, then I can leave you in a whole state because I will be intertwined in your marriage. See, Kim and I have made it so far because we have God in our marriage. There have been moments, and I want to confess this openly, that my wife should have left me. Not because I had an affair, not because I did anything that was immoral or wrong. I've just been a jerk. A royal, royal jerk. In most cases, people would have looked at Kim and said, Go! Leave that idiot. But my wife has allowed God to be in this marriage and say, God, He's a jerk. But you love Him and I do too. Help me have eyes of grace. Help me have forgiving heart. Help me embrace Him as you want me to embrace Him. That's why I love my wife so much. That's the beauty that draws me to her. It's her inner beauty. She's beautiful on the outside, but it is her inner beauty of who she is. Let God be in your marriage. Father God, I don't know what's going on in this room, and I don't know what the issues are in this room that are creating conflict. There's probably some pretty dark moments in some marriages right now. And I get that. It's very real. God, I suspect there were words spoken today that husbands and wives are sitting now in this room wishing they could take back and undo, but they've already been spoken. Like arrows thrown at a heart. With precision and focus, they threw those arrows at the heart of their spouse. And today, they wish that they could change that. May your grace come in and envelop us. God, be present in our marriages. Be here today in homes. Let us live this out in front of our next generation so that my son someday, God, and my daughter... Don't look at dad and go, what a jerk and what a mean guy. And I'm going to live out my life the same way. May they see the grace lived out 
And may they choose in their marriage in the next five to ten years or whenever that is, may they choose to represent you. May I live out a model before them that does not disappoint you, but gives glory to who you are. And may every person in this room think about the fact that our children are watching us so close. We love you, God. I'm going to ask our host team to come this morning for just a moment.